Hello, and welcome back to yet another lackluster episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst into all the hit, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Geppetto Pinocchio. Well, who cares? Come on, everybody. Let's go rock and roll. Our story today takes place on Tuesday, August 12, 1952, in Los Angeles, California, inside the Radio Records Annex Recording Studio, located at 7000 Santa Monica Boulevard. The United States was in the midst of the Korean War while facing the peak of the polio epidemic. The Brooklyn Dodgers were on their way to their first of two back-to-back World Series losses against the New York Yankees. It's almost funny how history repeats itself. And of course, a 14-year young Elvis Presley's grades were beginning to slip as he was a junior at Humes High School in Memphis, Tennessee. He went from having A's and B's to now straight C's, all due to his growing fascination with music, which inevitably would distract him from his studies. There's even a picture of Elvis from August 1952 taken out a school dance that he helped set up an usher. I'll have it linked on the website if you'd like a glimpse into this time. Today's focus is on Lieber and Stoller. Have you ever heard the names Jerry Lieber or Mike Stoller? Well, if you have, or if you haven't, either way, I guarantee these guys wrote one of your favorite songs. Today, we're going to stage dive headfirst into the story of this epic songwriting duo, two hit-making demigods that changed the history of rock and roll. But, as usual, before we get there, let's roll on back that clock once again as we time travel, this time to 1933, and find out who these sultans of songwriting, Lieber and Stoller, truly are. So now it's spring 1933. On March 13th, Michael Mike Stoller was born. On April 25th of this same year, Jerome Jerry Lieber was born, both born to East Coast Jewish families. Lieber was from Baltimore, Maryland, and Stoller was from Long Island, New York. From an early age, both of the guys found an escape through music. Stoller came from a stern and sometimes empty, but musical home. His aunt was a concert pianist, His mother, Adeline Endor, was a Broadway performer. She even dated her neighbor, George Gershwin, for a time. However, she eventually marries his hard-working father, Abe Stoller, who worked two jobs and was often gone, from 5 a.m. and not returning home from work until 2 a.m. His mother would frequently sing around the house. She would sing Gershwin songs, which I kind of thought was a little weird, but I mean, it is Gershwin, so that's okay. And some of his earliest memories were of his family's Victrola record player, where he would sit and listen to records all day. He loved most of music, but specifically was inspired by Richard Strauss' uh, Salome dance. Salome dance? Salami dance? I don't know. It honestly sounds like it came straight off the Indiana Jones soundtrack, but let's take a quick listen.
yeah, so kind of a weird kid, I guess. But he also had a liking for Sostakovich, Sibelius, and Bach. But all this culturally rich musical taste would quickly go out the window upon discovering black boogie-woogie music and jazz, which his family was not too fond of. Despite their disapproval, he would go on to take piano lessons from the great stride pianist James P. Johnson, who taught him the fundamentals of piano and the 12-bar structure. He's quoted as telling the young Mike Stoller, Understanding structure is key to confidence. Keep at it and one day you'll make a living banging on those keys. On the flip side, little Jerry Lieber was an errand boy for his widowed mother, Manya Lerner Lieber, who was a small grocery store owner. She was a tough woman and was known around town for throwing a man through a plate glass window for asking what the fuck he had to do to get a pint of ice cream. Jerry was the only white kid in town that would deliver to the black neighborhoods. He loved going to all the homes as he was treated like a family member at each stop. Each and every home along the route would be playing boogie woogie music through their radios. So he looked forward to his shifts of being surrounded by these loving families and the great lively music that inspired him. He said the first record he distinctly remembers was Boogie Express by Derek Sampson. He would be bullied for being Jewish and would eventually join a street gang. He picked up smoking at the ripe old age of nine years old and would frequently get into fistfights with other boys. His mother worried he'd end up in the electric chair. By the time they were both hitting their teens, the families both moved out west to Los Angeles, California. Twelve-year-old Jerry Lieber and his mother arrived in Larchmont area of Los Angeles on the exact day World War II had ended. He was fascinated by L.A. and was excited to be living in the land of his radio show heroes like the Green Hornet, The Shadow, Amos and Andy. Living in L.A. made Lieber feel optimistic about his future, saying, You dream big in California. He eventually began working as a busboy at Clifton's Cafeteria in downtown L.A. Mike and the Stollers moved out to California by the time he was 16. He was happy to move out west because while back home in New York, he was attending Forest Hills High School, who has a few notable alumni, including Burt Bacharach, Dave Rubenstein, Simon and Garfunkel, they're among But anyway, he said the school lacked diversity. And despite all the hipsters at his school warning him that L.A. was really square, he said they were all wrong, and it was actually quite the opposite. Upon moving, he transferred to Belmont High School in Westlake, and his family was now living near downtown Los Angeles. Jerry Lieber was now attending Fairfax High School and was growing tired of the busser life. He worked the graveyard shift and said it was a bitch of a gig. One night while carrying a tray of dirty dishes, he accidentally inhales some grass that one of the cooks in the kitchen was smoking. There was a song playing over the cook's radio called Ain't Nobody's Business by Jimmy Witherspoon. It's in this moment he realizes now he wants to pursue a life of music. Quoting Jerry Lieber here, he said, He couldn't explain his reaction at that moment and was transported to a realm of mystical understanding. The light came on. Witherspoon turned it on. He didn't know if it was the lyrics or what. Whatever it was, he said he was never the same again. Whatever Witherspoon was doing, he now realized he could do it too. Whatever Witherspoon was saying, he could say it too. He was a brand new man and now knew he wanted to start writing songs. He then quits the restaurant and wanting to be surrounded by music, finds a new job at a record store called Nordy's, located directly across the street from Cantor's Delicatessen.
Back to Mike Stoller. While Lieber was getting high and having epiphanies and writing songs, Stoller was now making friends, jamming with other musicians, and getting high. Uh, okay, he wasn't really getting high, but he had this girlfriend named China uh, that he loved, and they would sit under her blanket and they would burn this medication that they that she had for her asthma, and he said it smelled kind of like pot. And I'm telling you, to me, this sounds exactly like Asmodor, which is basically chemical pot. So yeah, he was getting high. And if you don't believe me, look it up. Asmodor. Okay, anyway. So Stoller now has friends and he was jamming with other musicians. He wanted to escape the depressive atmosphere at home and begin gigging around town playing piano in a band with his friends from school. They would play jazz and he described his trumpet player as having a seductive Miles Davis-like tone. And although he was having fun playing with the guys, he knew he lacked an ability to really make it as a jazz player. He was a practical kid, and he decided he would have more success with composition. This realization led him to start studying under Arthur Lang, who was known as the Dean of Hollywood Orchestrators. Lang had scored many movies, and Stoller was hoping that maybe he could learn the skill, and that was something he could do in life. He would still continue to gig, though, as a way to earn a little pocket money. In January 1950, he graduated from Belmont High and began attending classes at Los Angeles City College. Back at Nordy's record shop, Lieber was working the counter one day when a man by the name of Lester Sill walks in the door. He was a sharp-dressed man who quickly whips out his business card and handed it to Lieber. Turns out Lester Sill was the national sales manager for Modern Records. This impressed Lieber. He recognized the label and said it was a hip little label specializing in the blues artists that he loved. Right off the bat, Sill began pitching records to the young Lieber. Jerry tells Mr. Sill that he's only a low-level employee and has no buying power, but that didn't stop Sill from his pitch. He said, Kid, I think you're going to like this music, and began playing a record. The song he put on was Boogie Chillin' with John Lee Hooker singing. Lieber said in that moment, the epiphany re-exploded and expanded, knocking him on his ass. Sill then began to dance around along to the music and was doing a little jig that Lieber described to be in the style of Sandman Sims which just added to the moment's enchantment. After the dance was done, Sill asked Jerry, where are you going to be when you grow up, kid? And I'm quoting the rest here. This is how the conversation went. Where are you going to be when you grow up, kid? I'm already grown up. Where are you going to be when you get bigger? A songwriter. Sill then asked Jerry to sing him one of his songs, to which Jerry, in fear of being fired for slacking off, declines. Sill insists, however, that he was old friends with the shop owner and that it would be fine. So Jerry sings in one of his original compositions called Real Ugly Woman, to which Lester Silcox's his head and the conversation continues. Not bad. You got any others? Sure. Get me copies. How do I do that? You got to write out a lead sheet for me. What's a lead sheet? Piece of paper with notes on it and lyrics underneath the notes. I don't write notes. We'll find someone who does. So now, for Jerry Lieber, the search was on. Jerry said an uncontrollable compulsion was driving him, and he needed to find a writing partner, and fast. He eventually finds a partner named Jerry Horowitz, and was as quickly as they started writing songs, they stopped. One day, Horowitz missed a writing session, and Lieber didn't hear from him for about a week. When he finally shows back up again, he tells Lieber that his dad had died, so now Horowitz had to start working and put his songwriting dreams behind him. Lieber was crushed, but understood, as he too lost his father at an early age. 
As the two were about to part ways, Horowitz reaches into his pocket and hands Lieber a piece of paper with a phone number on it and says, By the way, I played a gig last weekend in East L.A. and I thought the piano player was pretty good. And Lieber replies, You got his name? Then the other Jerry says back, Yeah, Mike Stoller. Mike Stoller says the call came from out of the blue. Hi, my name is Jerome Lieber. Are you Mike Stoller? Yup. Did you play a dance in East LA last week? Yup. Can you write notes on music paper? Yup. Would you write songs with me? Nope. Stoller then says he doesn't like songs and was asked what he does like. He pretentiously says he likes Bella Bartok and the Thelonious Monk. Jerry then tells Mike that he thinks they should still meet up and Stoller tells him, look, if you want to come over, come over. And as soon as the phone hung up, the doorbell was already ringing. Lieber was in a rush. He needed to get some songs down and submit it to Lester Sill as soon as possible. So he runs over to Stoller's house and busts through the door. Upon arriving, he's greeted by Mike, who is sporting a beret and a dizzy Gillespie-style goatee. Lieber thought, oh shit, a bebopper, not one of them. But he could look past it. He wanted to write songs, so songs were going to be written. Stoller's first impression of Lieber was that he noticed his eyes. One was blue and the other was brown, which he had never seen before, so he was kind of intrigued by the kid. He was frantically out of breath and holding his notebook. He was a little curious. Stoller was in fact more of a bebopper and wasn't really interested in writing songs, however. He assumed Jerry would want to write stupid songs that were on the radio at the time. But he figured if Jerry went through all the trouble to come over to his house, he might as well at least look at the lyrics. So he starts flipping through the book, and he was caught by surprise. He reads, She's a real ugly woman. Don't know how she got that way. Followed by some ditto marks, which piqued his interest. Then the third line, Every time she comes around, she runs all my friends away. Stoller realizes this wasn't the stupid songs from the radio. This was the blues, and he loved the blues. So he agrees to write songs with him, despite Stoller being a little reluctant and Jerry being a little pushy, the two 17-year-old kids shake hands and a partnership is born. Although the two were quite different, they complemented each other well. Lieber was more spastic and quick-witted. He could paint pictures with his words. Stoller was more cool, calm, and collected. He was skilled in many different styles of playing and could recreate almost anything he ever heard onto the piano. Their method was simple. Stoller would sit at the piano and fool around while Lieber stood up throwing out lyrics and song title ideas. He would tend to dance along with the words and act out the lyrics as they would go, you know, to keep things light and fun. They felt that by keeping things fun, it would result in authenticity. Their intent was to write black music and only black music. They grew up listening to black music and it's what they loved they wanted to write songs for black voices Stoller says Jerry even sounded black when he sang which gave them an advantage and it didn't hurt that he had some lessons from J.P. Johnson also so Mike would sit at the piano and start to riff and Jerry would be spitting out his lines and during the process the two would often disagree on things Sometimes the notes wouldn't match the words, or the words wouldn't match the notes, and then they would argue of what to change. Uh, but the two were stubborn in their own ways, and there was this constant pushing and pulling between them. In the end, though, it would always work out. Stoller said they would usually wind up with something that surprised and delighted them both. A good song. 
They quickly built up a small catalog of songs and reported back to Lester Sill. At the time, while Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald may have been on the major labels, the majority of black artists were being released on smaller independent labels like Atlantic, Modern, Aladdin, Imperial, and King. The big labels like Decca and RCA didn't understand this music at all and considered it to be heavily ethnic music. They didn't see it as being commercially viable, but Lester Sill disagreed. Like Lester, Lieber, and Stoller, the record label owners were Jewish. Sill explains to the boys how the Jews got into scrap metal business by picking up all the scraps that the big iron and steel companies threw out. He continues to explain that this is a similar situation, except the black artists are the scrap that the big companies don't want to deal with. It was a one man's trash, the other man's treasure scenario. Jerry then asked Sill if he really thought that their songs were valuable jewels and if two teenage kids could really get away with pretending to understand the kinds of songs that black men and women would ever want to sing. Lester responds with a yes and another hell yes for good measure. He then sets the boys up with an appointment to meet the heads of Modern Records, the Bihari brothers, to show off their stuff. They arrive to their appointment at the Modern Records main office, on time, and check in with the receptionist. They then take a seat in the lobby and begin waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and some more waiting. They couldn't take the waiting anymore, and they couldn't wait any longer. So they decided they were being stood up, and they stormed out of the office and started walking down the street towards Santa Monica Boulevard. Suddenly, they look up and see a large sign across the street. The sign said, Aladdin Records. The boys took one look at each other and then walked straight into the front door. Upon entering the building, they were greeted by a receptionist and the superb sax player Maxwell Davis, who had just recently written the smash hit Bad Bad Whiskey for Amos Milburn. Do you have an appointment? The receptionist asks. No, Jerry replies, but we have hit songs. Mac Davis quickly cuts in and says, okay, boys, let's see what you got. And then they go straight into the back room where there was a piano. Stoller says he doesn't remember exactly what song they played, but it was probably an up-tempo's blues number that probably employed a sexual metaphor. Max Davis was impressed by the boys, and he wanted to hear more. After hearing a few more, he told them that he wanted the bosses to check them out. He felt that he knew that they were onto something, and he wanted the bosses to hear it. The Messner brothers, Leo and Eddie, then enter the room, and nod in approval as the boys played their songs. Lieber and Stoller then walk right back out the front door, but now with a song contract and two big smiles. After Lester still hears about the boys' little side quest, he immediately marches them back to Modern Records to make sure that this time they get their audition. When they get there, they are greeted by the Bahari Brothers and their top singing group, the Robins. Since they had confidence now, they jumped straight into their new song they were working on. The Robins were really into it. The song would be released one month later, performed by the Robins, entitled, That's What the Good Book Says. And despite having their names misspelled on, on the record, it was a real record. Lieber and Stoller couldn't be happier. They were now on their way. One miracle would turn into another, and one month later, their next single was released. It was Real Ugly Woman, and as fate would have it, it was performed by none other than Jimmy Witherspoon himself, the man who gave Jerry Lieber his life-changing epiphany, that got him into songwriting in the first place. Lieber and Stoller would continue to have success writing songs. And they would get those songs put out on records by various black artists. It's now August 12, 1952, and the boys are 19 years old. 
After one of their classic argumentative tug-of-war style songwriting sessions, their song titled Kansas City was being recorded by Little Willie Littlefield with the help of Maxwell Davis playing tenor saxophone. A record label owner named Ralph Bass suggested they change the name of the song to KC Lovin', which is how it was originally released. Of course, a few years down the road, the song would be re-recorded by Wilbert Harrison, and that's probably the version that most of us know. And the name would be changed to Kansas City on that recording. This version of the song became a massive chart-topping hit, and is considered a standard today. Stoller said it was one of their most recorded tunes, with over 300 versions out there. I mean, everybody has played this song. The people who've recorded this song are like Little Richard, The Beatles, James Brown, Bill Haley, Fats Domino, Jan and Dean, the Everly Brothers. I mean, even Muddy Waters has his own rendition of it. It's safe to say this song definitely is a large puzzle piece in the rock and roll puzzle. And so the very next day, on August 13, 1952, inside the Radio Records Annex recording studio, an artist known as Big Mama Thornton was about to record a song. She needed a hit, and in a matter of minutes, Lieber and Stoller cooked one up specifically for her. They knew that her voice was the perfect instrument to perform this deadly blues number that they just came up with. On her first attempt at the song, she began to croon out the words. Jerry then interrupts the session and says, Big Mama, that's not how it goes. If you just attack it with a little more, and before he could finish his suggestion, she snaps at him with a fury that knocked him onto his heels, he says. And she says, Come here, boy, I'll show you what you can attack. You can attack this, all while grabbing her crotch. The band all laughed, and Big Mama was about to laugh him out of the studio. She didn't know who this kid thought he was, trying to tell her how to attack the song differently. As Lieber was about to walk his way out of the studio, he was stopped by one of the guys in on the session who was more familiar with Jerry's idea and goes, sing it, Jerry, why don't you show Big Mama how it goes? And Stoller starts up on the piano, Big Mama stood there with her arms crossed, ready to laugh a white teenage boy out of, the, of an attempt to sing the blues. But then Lieber starts singing the lyrics to Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, quit snooping around my door. You can wag your tail, but I ain't going to feed you no more. And suddenly the joke was over. She now understood the direction of the song, and she would take Lieber's advice. The song turned out to be a masterpiece. Lieber said Big Mama didn't croon, she growled. The groove was right on time, the guitar solo was right on the money. Big Mama fulfilled Lieber and Stoller's dream, and they were the happiest teenagers in the United States of America. The song was Thornton's only hit record, selling only over 500,000 copies, spending 14 weeks in the R&B charts, including seven weeks at number one, which is pretty good, actually. This recording is featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 Songs That Shaped Rock and Roll list. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2013. Now, I don't think I need to explain to you the song Hound Dog. It's one of the most famous rock and roll songs of all time. The song would be recorded over 250 times. It's, of course, most famously recorded by our old friend Elvis Presley. Elvis's version is the one that would sweep the nation. It's quoted as being an emblem of the rock and roll revolution. And I mean, seriously, anytime you're watching something like a documentary about rock and roll or anytime rock and roll is mentioned, you know it almost always cuts to that clip of Elvis like swinging his hips around, singing Hound Dog. I bet you're picturing it in your mind right now. Elvis's version would sell 10 million copies worldwide and was simultaneously number one in the pop, country, and R&B charts, sitting at the top of the pop charts for 11 straight weeks. 
which held that record for 36 years. Lieber and Stoller would go on to write many more songs. This list is incredible. They wrote so many popular songs that it's almost hard to believe. Okay, well first off, they pretty much wrote the Coaster's entire discography. Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Long Came Jones, Down in Mexico, Poison Ivy. All Lieber and Stoller. I mean, it's not just the Coasters either. Jailhouse Rock. Right and Cell Block number nine, Love Potion number nine, Smokey Joe's Cafe, Alligator Wine, Down Home Girl, There Goes My Baby, Stand By Me, yeah, Lieber and Stoller. When I say incredible, I really mean incredible. There's a full list of all the songs they wrote featured on LieberStoller.com. I'll have it linked on the website. Go check out that list and see for yourself. I guarantee there will be at least five songs on there that you love. Hell, I bet I already named five songs that you already love. Please go check that out. There's also a fantastic book called Hound Dog, the Lieber and Stoller autobiography. It's where I got most of my information for this episode today. The book is over 300 pages long, and I covered only about 30 of them. I highly recommend you get a copy. It belongs on the bookshelf of any re- self-respecting rock and roll connoisseur. It's a fun book that reads in like a timeline fashion. Similar to their songwriting styles, it kind of goes back and forth between Lieber and Stoller's first-person account of things. Uh, it's an interesting to witness everything from their perspective and how they kind of witnessed and helped shape music. Without Lieber and Stoller, rock and roll might not even have been more than a little blip on our radar, kind of like a fad. We should all be thankful for these guys. Paul Schaefer is quoted as saying, Lieber and Stoller, there would be no rock and roll without them. And it's so true. Without the influence of their songs, there's no telling where we would be today. Just think of all those black artists that would have just stayed there little, on their little independent labels only to vanish like diamonds in the rough. Ray Charles said that he loved Lieber and Stoller, calling them those bad white boys who wrote the blackest songs this side of the Mississippi. They really helped propel black music and bring that music out and show it to the world. Put them on the top of the charts, breaking down barriers and spreading an immeasurable influence I can't even comprehend. It's easy to see how important these guys truly are. And you know, I just had a thought with all this time we have now with our social distancing and quarantining. Why don't we all just go on our media players, whether it's Spotify or YouTube or whatever you use. Let's all make our list of our favorite Lieber and Stoller songs. Publish them. Get them out in the world. Put their names in the title of the list. People should know about these guys. Sometimes we should peek behind the curtain. These guys shouldn't be a secret. Everyone should know their names. Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, the songwriting extraordinaires, Lieber and Stoller. concludes another episode of rock and roll history i hope it was a fun one for you today i can't really tell if you guys like the longer episodes or the shorter ones so please let me know shoot me an email check out the website www.rockandrollhistory.com and remember to wash your hands and to rock and roll